Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Robert Conley, Nick Seidler, and Adam Balderstone, and we are going to be talking about authentic medieval gaming. Uh, a week ago, Rob ran a session for us of a uh, medieval authentic campaign, and we live-streamed it, so we're going to post a link. It's up on Adam's channel, and today we're going to talk about sort of how that went uh, and 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 just the idea of of what an authentic medieval campaign can mean so i don't know why don't you guys uh you know just opening thoughts and then we can kind of get into it well i did not participate this is nick talking so i did not participate in the game and i was not 100 percent sure uh what authentic medieval meant and i think maybe that was the point of this game lab <laughs> and so in, in my mind, I originally thought that authentic medieval would mean, you know, no monsters in the setting or uh, that one would have to adhere to the very strict rules of, uh, you know, medieval culture at the time, or at least in my mind, uh, Western medieval sword and sorcery or, or not sorcery, but, you know, uh, historical. Um, and when I watched the live stream of you guys playing, I realized that we had uh, slightly different definitions, which is, I think, where this topic came from. And so maybe we should let Rob explain what his vision of that was. Uh, sure. Um, basically, to me, when I do work on, on cultures, religion, all the background stuff, the, you know, I do that because I enjoy doing it, but when it comes to gaming, what it, what it primarily... Uh, does it support the uh, it provides a foundation for how NPCs behave because that's the only place where it really shows up. If you look at our our world and you can read a lot about history books and stuff but re really where it shows up is how people how people in say uh, Alabama act compared to Pennsylvania compared to Ontario, Canada compared to uh, France, Germany, uh, Thailand, all of that is a product of their history, their culture, and their religion. So when it comes to uh, running uh, campaigns using D&D uh, &D and uh, games related to D&D, &D, the backdrop is obviously uh, Western medieval Europe. That's one of the, the foundations of what makes D&D D&D. So to me, what authentic medieval is, is that the people that you encounter, the peasants, the nobles, the merchants, act like they do in our medieval history. Now, there'll be some modification because obviously I am not using Western Europe as the setting. Instead, I, for that game, I was using a uh, uh, very light, version of my majestic waterland but since i set it in a similar time period of western europe and similar circumstances where they're now they're part of a you know the economy is you know had some money in it but wealth is mostly tied into land so hence you need a feudal society if you want to raise any raise and support any kind of military for it so you know the the what using uh how people acted in the middle in the Middle Ages really helps me with my with that uh, with that my campaign set in that uh, setting. So that to me, what authentic medieval is. If you look at the the question, I would ask any of you when watching it: Did any of the NPCs, not the not the more fantastic one like like the Russet Lord, or or the uh, or the other creatures in 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 that dungeon, but the uh, did the NPCs feel like they stepped out of the pages of medieval Europe? And I, I would say, well, I would say to me, yes, I think that, uh, and, and it was the things that you were emphasizing. So you know, the importance of stuff like patronage, that kind of thing. Um, you know how how uh, you know there there were many instances where you know you you understood how. Uh, uh, agrarian the society was, um, and you know, and the and the and the role of the church and things like that. So it felt to me, uh, it felt, and I think I think Rob's right. It was coming, you know, from the way the NPCs were were interacting with the party. 
one of the reasons why we did this too is because we, you know, there was a there was an ongoing discussion on uh, on the RPG side about this, and we were, uh, you know, with uh, um, uh, where the idea of authentic medieval gaming had been discussed, and people were kind of all over the map in terms of what that meant, and there was a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, differing opinions, and and so I thought it would be. You know, you know, Rob does this does this a lot with his games, and so I thought, you know, getting his idea of a medieval authentic would help clarify things. It would at least give, at the very least, it would provide an example of what it can mean. And so that was uh, that was sort of the aim here. Yeah, I think one thing you you really got right is that a lot of people seem to act like a feudal society is almost like totalitarian, like no one has freedom and everything's very strict hierarchy. But the fact is because of the lack of communication and so on, you have situations like you had in, in this where the, you know, the, the Abbey here is, is being really corrupt because they can, because nobody, nobody comes along to look very often. And, you know, and I mean, that feels authentically medieval to me. The fact that, you know, it's it's a difficult thing to go check up on what's going on in different regions and the people the people in each area are somewhat autonomous to an extent, even though they're part of this very, hierarchical structure i thought that was a good touch i, th I thought there was uh what having had a chance to watch the game uh that you guys played it started in a way that many games do not usually start which i really liked about rob's gameplay and that had to do with um when brendan's character and i Forgive me because i don't remember all the names but simon when he was pepwell in... simon pepwell was my character. <laughs> yes yep <laughs> And as, as he was introduced, in the very first transaction, uh, it mattered who your father was, and it mattered how well your father was doing. So suddenly we, we think of our characters as independent, but Rob had introduced uh, you know, the whole idea of the family and how the family gets along with everyone. And another thing that I really liked uh, about the game, in terms of making it authentically you know, medieval, was that... Um, it was not expected that you as a lone adventurer would be able to solve this problem on your own. The reason that you guys together ended up working, you know, and then eventually you added somebody to your party. But when the two adventurers first started off, it was literally like, I'm sending you to take care of this problem. However, I want to send some muscle. I want to send a yeah. knight with you. Yeah, that was so a good setup. So it's very that different very than how setup. a lot of people... Yeah, it's different than how people D&D play, where you assume that everyone is able-bodied. But mm -hmm. now it was definitely culturally, we need to send the muscle with you. Like, there's a reason. So Yeah, and, and the thing is, it's like, going back to the, you know, the nature of a medieval society. Once we were out there, yeah, we were working for the bishop, but he's days away. So we're, we're kind of free agents to an extent in how we do what we need to do for the bishops. I mean, you didn't get to any of that. <laughs> you didn't get to watch the whole thing. But yeah, we we had to be very creative in how we dealt with things. And, and, and I will point out, even though there wasn't any immediate check to your freedom, because, you know, the British, if you recall, the bishop was pretty vague on how to get his tithe. Yeah. And, uh, but the bishop is pay, will be paying attention to the result, and that sure. will determine whether <laughs> you will receive his continued patrium. Because if you go in there and tear up a thing and basically you know, bust up the uh, abbey to the point where it can't really function as a uh, pilgrimage site or affected revenue stream... Yes, that was not his intent. <laughs> You're not going to get those kind of jobs anymore. That's, 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 you know, that's gonna be, but however, if you do a really good job, and, uh, in, you know, then the bishop will, will think, you know, I got this other problem here or I got this thing, this estate that needs to be run. Maybe these guys can do it for me. Well, and, and the thing, too, that, that Nick had mentioned family, I thought that was something that uh, for me as a player, because we were kind of really taking Rob's lead on this. We were just going in saying we don't know what, what Rob's idea of medieval authentic is. So we're just going to go in open minded and just whatever Rob presents us with will will accept that and try to try to lean into it as best we can. Um, and the family thing for me was one of the more helpful aspects of it because I was able to connect my character to the setting in a concrete way. And it, it also did place certain restraints on my character 
um, as well as giving me levers I could pull. So, uh, and I, I find that just in general with historical gaming, the one of the first things to go out the window in a normal D and D game is family. Like that's where you know the murder hobo thing is all about the lack of you know connections to the community or to family, and and the thing that can really bind people back into a historical setting I find or giving them family ties or at least asking them about their family ties so you know okay you know wh- what you know who who's gonna care if something happens to you or if you go and you tarnish the family name or break the law and you know the government uh, if it's a society with collective punishment uh, you know there, there's there's yeah. things like that can it, it can become a useful way for setting elements i think to become important because that was a lot of the stuff that had to do with how uh marriage was being approached uh you know had to do with the family situation that i was in um yeah i remember remember the first time i played in a wandering heroes of ogre gate game of yours brendan you were like okay it's very important you've got to like roll on the generating your family stuff because the family stuff's really important so as soon as rob brought your family into the game like oh brendan's going to be happy that's uh You know, I, I I will roll on. I got tables that mostly crib from Harn, but for generating somebody's family tree, and uh, but I I try to do it with a light touch. You know, I try to I try to keep it approachable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't for Brendan. We really didn't get into his mother. We didn't get into his brothers. You know, he had a brother, but that's it. We knew that yeah, I was what, well, like the, I was the second son, right? That was the information. Yes, right. yep, that's what you said. Right, and and you know, and and he had a relationship with his father, and you know, he didn't, you know, and the only really parameter they had, he was a bit of a nerdy well, you know, going around having a good old time, and his father wasn't quite too happy with that. Well, I felt but, a little uh, bit like Blackadder from the very first season. Yeah, <laughs> there you go, and. Uh, you know, and that's all I, I generally go in at first. And then if other details are needed, I just work them in and, you know, either work with the player or if, if something they need to be done behind the screen, then I'll do it myself. And uh, and it builds up from there. And But my general philosophy is that the best magic item a PC can acquire is another PC. Oh, nice. And, and so there's always opportunities to build relationships. And the other thing I got to really stress is for people listening to this and want to do this in your own game, you got to deliberately force yourself to make sure that all that at least a third of this stuff doesn't come with any undue complication. In other words, it's not a lot of players are paranoid about this because they viewed it as a way for the DM to screw over the, yes, the player. Yes. <laughs> So it's important to have, if you want to make it feel real, whether you're doing medieval or, you know, ancient uh, Mesopotamia or Rome, it doesn't matter what setting of the past that you're putting in or even present. You got to make sure, like in real life, some relationships are, you know, you have are great. They, they're just a benefit. You enjoy them. There's few, if any, complication. The the majority of your relationship, or maybe we'll just call it a third because, you know, we're, we're venturing, so there's always going to be complication. The, the, the middle, or it's just going to be indifferent, you know? They, it just, they're there. They're not necessarily beneficial, but they're not a hindrance. And then, then there's the third that there are full of complication, like a sibling that always gets in trouble and the law comes looking for you to find out where your brother is, you know, that kind of deal. Or... In a case, in recent example of my campaign, the players uh, collected a bunch of uh, NPCs to train them up as henchmen and stuff, and they went off for an extended period of time down south, and they didn't really leave their house guarded well, and <laughs> they messed with an NPC in a previous session, and the NPCs messed with those people they left behind basically mind controlled them to act like unwilling spies and you know the players were kind of really annoyed you know the players were you know oh my god you know it really it they we're still dealing with the fallout of that 
in in that campaign. But on the other hand, you know, when they went south, they went to this uh, city, and they weren't having a good time dealing with uh, city official. They they they're all they're they're very much a gray party, and but the city they went to is no, no, notorious for being corrupt. And they went in there, and this official, you know, basically during the conversation, he figuredly put his hand out, and one of the players goes, you know, it's like a light coming on his head. It's like, I'd offer him two gold crowns if he, if, if he, you know, and he came up with this like, uh, yes, we understand your predicament and inconvenience. Well, here's two crown, gold crown to cover your inconvenience and expedite it. And everything went smoothly because they paid the bribe and you know, there was no reason to screw the PC. It didn't make sense given the context. And, you know, they dealt with that situation for two sessions and they were really happy afterwards. So it's really important not to, to, to keep a balance in what kind of complications you, you poise the players or they will avoid it and try to become murder, murder hole, horrible. Yeah, if 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 um if every family member becomes a hostage or betrays PCs, they 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 avoid them. If if anybody they develop a romantic interest in and marries, uh, does something terrible to them or becomes a hostage, they'll avoid that. It, it, it you know they they need to come with the same benefits and downsides that they they really would have come with. Um, yeah. so that people are motivated, you know, otherwise there's no motivation to engage that aspect of the setting. So well, I think, uh, I think a good model to look at from early gaming is, I mean, Rune, one of the things RuneQuest tried to do is get players more involved with the world by having the cults that players belong to and cults, cults would require some, oh, you've got to go do this job for us, but it's also meant you got cheaper training as you ranked up in the, in the cult, you'd get cool, cool stuff and cool benefits and it. It, you know, and it, and it was, and, and those cults are a great way to get players invest. They're part of the world. They're part of this organization in the world. And families, you know, a medieval family is the same kind of thing. They're, you know, they're an organization. If you're part of a, a noble family to an extent, they're your family, but they're also a, a power structure. And yeah, you, you need to balance that. And, and I think that's fun. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we've been playing, you know, Hill Folk with the drama system starting yesterday. And that's a game where your family is both a, a can be a, an ally and be a, a hindrance at the same time. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 family's a complicated thing and, and, it, and it should be complicated, but it needs to be interesting. And I think it's a big benefit to games. One, and one of the say, things, say, oh, go on. Oh, you, uh, I was going to say one of the things that I observed uh, in, in the game was that as Rob introduced family elements, um, and while it was an important part of the game, he often let the players make the decisions, even though you guys hadn't weren't quote-unquote forced ahead of time to think this through, he gave the players the opportunity to flesh out their background. So, you know, Brent, Brendan got in the situation very early in the game in which he was asked about his father and how his father was doing, which allowed Brennan to decide this, the, the, <laughs> the level of, of friendliness that they had. He's like, oh, we've kind of patched things up. You know, he kind of talked about that. And then later, you know, Brennan had the opportunity to expand on the fact that he had a brother and that he was not the only person in the family that he was the younger of the two kids. Well, that, maybe that was established kidding. before play. The, um, was it? Okay. Yeah, that detail was, we, we, uh, we knew that I was the second brother, uh, when I made my character. Um, and I like the way that, that was, a an, that, that question was in relation to you potentially marrying that girl. You weren't really going to marry, but it's like, Oh, you're the younger brother. Yeah. That was, that was a, yeah, that's, good stuff. That was the sort of thing that was, was I thought that's disappointing. Yeah. Now, Rob, what, uh, what resources and books do you recommend for this street level type of detail? Because I got to say, I, I took multiple courses on, uh, on medieval history and I found it didn't equip me for running a medieval game. I had to go and get a lot of this sort of ground level information in specific types of books that you wouldn't necessarily. So I think, I think you could read, you could read a lot. Like you were saying, you could read a lot of history books, but you still might not know what people in Alabama are like. So what are the, the resources 
for medieval stuff that gives you a handle on 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 how to how to run it at the ground level um to be honest it's not so much do you read you want to read the book after you get the the general outline in your head because mm-hmm. they will flesh out flesh out various effects but to get that general outline in the first place i recommend and i'll type this in the chat i recommend harn world wait for a sale they're they're a bit pricey by columbia games and uh, I recommend Fife by Lisa Steele, and I think it's also under Cumberland Games. And we'll post links uh, in the description too of the podcast for that stuff. Yeah, can I don't. Have, I don't have by email, Rob, after the podcast, so I can put them in. Yeah, I'll do that. And the last would be an, the, there's Ars Magica. Has a life medieval life book that's really good, and what what those authors did, um, they tried to take the mass of information and distill it into something that's gameable. Now, I, I think, i.e., this is a, this is the reason why Rob should why I should write my own. But I, sometimes they, I think they focus a little too more. It, it, they focus too much more on the structure and the law and the hierarchy, so to speak, and not enough on the personality. But it's there. It, it, it's there. The, the idea, you know, family is all, patronage is key. Uh, you know, it, 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 the, the, the idea that you keep your word was, was, you know, important because it's really it's the only way they could function with the lack of a sophisticated legal system like they had in ancient Rome in a later time period. And uh, so, you know, man's word was the only thing that that bound two people uh, together, at least in the early medieval ages. So all that's in there. But you read that, once you get a a grip on the outline, then start reading the, uh, you know, just browse... You know, if you have a Kindle or, or browse Amazon for various uh, medieval uh, books, like, for example, uh, Life in a Medieval City. Life in a Medieval Castle. Oh, and there is one game that's good. As a, one thing that's good for an uh, intro. And it is called the... The Peel Affinity, and it might be a bit pricey, and I'll send a link to that, but it's a picture book by a mm. group of reenactors, and it's really good. And it follows, it, it, it's in, two-thirds of it follows the life of an evil family throughout the course of a year, an entire year, from winter to winter. Then the last one-third, and the whole conceit of it is, you'll, you'll, as you see progress through the year, you'll learn that the, that, that the night whose household they're following, is got a contract to help uh, out with the Hundred Years War, with, with a uh, uh, Hundred Years War, and then the last third of the book is about his service, the result of him preparing, and it gets into the medieval life, uh, you know, the details of living on the campaign uh, medieval-wise. But the Peel Affinity, if you really, that is actually the, Overall and above all this, the the Harn world and Fife had to have the uh, logistics, but the Peel Affinity really brings it to life. I, I'm I'm going to give you the that should be the primary link. Okay, all right. Yeah, I find yeah. There's um there's also there's a um a, a type of book called the Micro History, which uh which that might be. I'm not familiar with that book, but those can be handy if you like if you find like a um you know, a specific area of Europe you're trying to model and getting a micro history on something that happened there at a date that approximates what you're looking for. That can be a real good sort of uh, street level view of things, I think. Um, I should, I should, I'd like to ask this question. And that is that I, I am familiar that GURPS came out with a classic Middle Ages book. And I think maybe even a, a Middle Ages 2 book. I, I don't have them. I'm just uh, putting a question out there for you guys of whether or not 
any of you guys have used that as a resource? Uh, I have. It's it's the same as Harn. It's not as good as Harn World or Fife, but it's there. If you already have it, then you have. You, then you don't need to bother with Harn World and Fife, basically. Yeah, and one thing I would say about Harn World too, um, and I don't know much as much about it as Rob, but I got in through uh, into Harn through Bill, and Harn is really good at giving you sort of. They they they're really good at making. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how I would phrase it. Like mundane stuff, interesting and fun to engage. Um, they, they do. They do a really good job with their uh, with their adventure material and stuff like that. Um, and this and the setting. It's all very sort of. I don't know. I think I think it does a really good job of explaining itself. Um, but uh, oh yeah, hard hard to me is the gold standard for all this stuff. Yeah, I think I think you could, uh, and 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 it's it's vast. Harn has like they have a lot of material. You you could spend your whole life, I think, buying Harn stuff, and uh, um, you know, probably not finish. But I, I will say though, um, it's not what the lack of better word independent. You can pick up sections, and it will be immediately useful. For example, I would I use in the majestic waterland. I use plenty of the Harn settlements when when I don't have time to to draw my own. I'll I'll just pull out a Harn town, and just or a Harn Harn castle, and that's mm. use that for the settlement. Maybe rotate it, flip it, but uh, it it they can if you understand how medieval history works and stuff, and you don't really have to have a deep understanding. You just understand how the general gist of it works. Just about anything in Harn can be made to work. Yeah, and, and again, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's the only thing that doesn't that really is tied together is the rules. And the I rules found. That, that... Oh God, I keep interrupting you. I apologize. No, that's all right. Uh, the the only thing that or the rule the rules like Harn Manor, Harn religion. Well, maybe not Harn Manor, but the religion, magic, and the Harn rules are, of course, rules oriented. So, kind of. But, um, yeah, I mean, and again, that was, you know, one of the things, like, like I was saying at the beginning of this, the, uh, the, the thread, which, which I, which I should mention started when, uh, the, the Lion and Dragon book came out and that was the described as a medieval authentic. And then that prompted the, uh, discussion about what medieval authentic is. And, and it was just striking how, like, I, I don't know, maybe I had a different reading of the threads than you, Rob, but my impression was people really had a, had there was number one. There was a lot of confusion about what what medieval authentic should look like, but there were also very strong differences of opinion on it, and and so I, I again I think it's just really helpful to kind of sort of sit down and try to illustrate it at least with an example here of of Rob's campaign, and uh, you know, and so so, uh, so yeah. So I don't know. Was that your reading of it, Rob? Do you think I I got it right, or yeah, I think the problem. I think it's part of the, you know, there, there, there's always a bunch of debates in in our hobby, like miniatures versus not using miniatures. Well, simulation, it's a, it's another divide that divides people gaming style, and I think when people when I was reading through it, my impression is, even though it's about authentic medieval. It was about, I think it was, most of the debate was, you know, how much simulation you ought to be doing, yeah. you know? And that and that's where I think the big divide came because people hate it. You know, people don't want, when they hear that, they're, they're thinking, you know, they're thinking Monty Python, mud and down in the mud, you know, mud cake peasants and, and, you know, uh, bloody swords, you know, tyrannies, you know, ty tyrannical rule. And they, they, they don't like that. And that's what it, and even though that's not how it really was, some of it was there, obviously, but not, not the extent that people often think it is. But that... Do you guys think that there might be a worry on, in some players that they may not know as much about 
medieval culture yes. as, say, a specific mm -hmm. game master, or that they might do something that would be considered uh, not authentically medieval. So okay. some people are maybe reluctant to participate in such a setting because they don't know that culture or subculture as well. I what do you guys think about that? I think... Um... I think people are worried about that. I think there's also the other issue of sometimes you get the player in the room who knows a lot, and that can be good or bad depending on how that player <laughs> handles that. But what we were trying to do is I think we were trying to really put, you know, let Rob sort of be the, the leader and, and, and set the tone for everybody, and we would follow. And so we kind of went in with, like, child minds where it's like we're just, you know, we're just playing, and we'll see what Rob wants. I think if you can do that, if you can, if you can run a game – for players, regardless of what their knowledge of the period is, and and guide them through it, then that's that's a sign that what you're doing is working. And so, um, I don't I don't know, Rob. How do you what do you what is your feeling on on player expertise and how necessary that is? Yeah, it it's definitely a factor, and I I learned over the years on how to work around that. That's why I rely on stereotypes a lot mm -hmm. and stuff. I I don't know if you guys. Yeah picked up on it but sometimes i really played into the medieval stereotypes, stereotypes so you guys can just friend definitely i i mean yeah when you're trying to communicate something at the game table stereotypes are very useful the other rule i have is if if, if the players opt to do something that's uh, background like let's lack a better word background attentive where it's historical or whatever i'm very generous about do-overs Mm -hmm. I.e., to me, and, and I, I try to be very liberal with this in my mind, so I'm not projecting my own assumptions on what the players ought to know. Uh, if the player looks like to do a boneheaded maneuver that's totally out of character for somebody of that setting or, or time period, mm -hmm. I would say, hey, wait, do you, this is what you really want to do because this is blah, blah, blah. And uh, I know you already said it, and but if you want to reconsider... Go ahead. And, you know, it's about half and half. Sometimes they go, you know, you're right. Uh, I wasn't thinking about it that way. I I'm going to do it this way. Or the other one, nope, that's what I wanted to do. Hit, hit me with the, the consequences. It's like, okay. And, uh, and as the players play more session in my campaign, then I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm mindful when, it, when my campaign starts especially with a new group of players, they're all strangers in a strange land, okay? Uh, even if I were studying it in actual medieval Europe, who who among us knew knows what it's like in Arteos in France in 1750s? Or not 17, the 1350s. Now, I did the research, but none of you guys, the, the chances of any of you guys did a research specifically for that campaign on Arteos of 1350, it's highly unlikely. So no matter what I do, I'm forced to act as a teacher and a guide at first to all these strangers who are in a strange land. And if so, if I want a successful, it's my interest to learn how to do that well in order to have a successful campaign. And, uh, yeah. And I think, um, I don't know. I, I feel like, uh, there's always going to be a learning curve with a, you know, unless you ha unless you get like three people who are professors of that period of history or something in your campaign, uh, the chance, if, if, especially if it's an obscure or just less traveled period, um, you're going to, you know, you, they're going to have to kind of pick it up as they go for the most part. Though I, I'd say I've had players in my group where the play where I had a player or two that knew more than I did. And that's another thing that can happen that you kind of have to, um, uh, prepare for and if you're really going for like again it depends on how uh historical you're being but if you're really going for historical uh one of the things i find is i tend to use that person as an encyclopedia and uh <laughs> and, and that that tends to work at least for the purposes of a game you know they might be wrong i don't know but at least in that moment i'm getting some information that's useful for gaming um you know i i think one of the tricks to making this setting work properly right is to for players, even if you know more than the game master about a setting, to sit back and allow the game master to present their game and the setting the way they see it. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, I and I think it's the same. Like in, to me, I kind of consider this like a player game master respect issue almost more than an accuracy issue, right? I don't think that the two of you would have ever interrupted Rob. <laughs> like even if you were like, hey, they didn't really have camels in the Middle Ages in Europe, or like if he introduced that element or something, because I think what was more important was the setting and the style of gameplay. And I think very often new role-playing groups or younger role-players are more apt to have arguments between the players and the game master over smaller details. Whereas I think as you become more experienced as a player, you're willing to say, ah, I see that the game master is doing their own twist on this. Um, And I think there's something to be said about... um, how it's kind of inappropriate for a player to interrupt or correct a game master about something in a game while it's happening, as opposed to maybe talking to them later or saying, Hey, here's something that might not exactly be accurate. Um, I, I think we've all over the years, because we're pretty experienced gamers have seen both of those situations. But to me, I think the important thing to take away here is that, if a game master gets something wrong about a setting and you happen to be the person who's super knowledgeable about it, um, send them a text message or send them a ninja note. Don't publicly correct them because it might be very intentional for their setting that they're doing it differently. Uh, and, and that, you know, it's not necessarily at the place of the game table to interrupt the story just for the sake of some accuracy. At least that's my take on it. Maybe you guys feel differently. Uh, well, so. My opinion, well, Rob, why don't you go first? Cause I... No, um, well, if you read my post, uh, I, you know I have strong opinions on stuff, but overriding all of that is, as a player, um, I'm not saying I'm perfect because I'm only human, but I really try to avoid correcting uh, a DM. What I focus on is, is I like to, when I play, the thing that, that I like the best about role-playing game is to role-play, pretending the acting part. I love it. I, I mean, I'll think of a personality for my character, and, and that's what I will play. And if, I, if the DM tells me that I'm playing in Europe, medieval Europe, then I will make a character that fits in medieval Europe and role-play them accordingly. If the DM is, has camels or other details wrong, you know, the only thing I can see getting me bent out of shape if I can't, if I feel like I'm playing like a guy in a medieval Europe, but I can't because the DM keeps saying, no, like like the old paladin, you're, you're not following the paladin code. Well, you're not being, you're acting like a proper, proper peasant. Well, I think I am. But other than that, you know, so I don't really care about what these details is, is because to me, what, what's really important in all this is how the people act. If the DM has the people acting like they're, they're in medieval Europe, you know, um, then he's done his job. And, and then the flip side, if I'm the DM and I have a knowledgeable player and, you know, if he's an asset, great problem you know, there's no problem there but if he's trying to, to continue to uh nitpick me the first thing i i do is that i do a lot of as you guys saw i do a lot of first person role playing i i engage you so that's a great distraction for people trying to nitpick because but they're you know if they if, they, if they're bringing them up hey but there's camos here and i'll have a merchant come up. Hey, would you like to buy this donkey I have over here? Dude, I noticed you were you're packing off for a journey. And you know, and immediately, you know, the player has to, you know, role play. And you know, I, I don't think it's bl- I don't do it blatantly, but I try to subtly do that, get that engaged and um going, but if it really forces down, then I'll just put on my uh Look, put on my DM hat and set my setting. Deal with it. 
I think one thing is that we are all game masters. So when we play in someone else's game, we know we know exactly how difficult it is to run a game. And it's like we're not gonna not gonna go, hey, you're doing this wrong. Because I mean, but for me, when I run a historical game, I make up front that, hey, this is my interpretation of this period of history. For the second we start playing, you know, for, when we're making our character, everything we're thinking about history, but going forward, events that happen don't have to be the actual historical events that occurred. Um, I'm trying to be accurate, but if I get something wrong, that's it. But, you know, you just need to roll with it. And, uh, <laughs> and but yeah, I, I like, I like, uh, Rob, I like your idea about, you know, how as long as, as long as you can play the character that you designed, you're fine. It's like, you know, you're not, if you're not going to tell me how to run my character, I'm not going to tell you how to run your game and vice versa. That seems like a fair, a fair divide there. And, uh, yeah, yeah, the closure the closure don't come to telling people how to run their campaign is when they take one of the, they take a paladin or a cleric, you know, an agent <laughs> character, agent a character that's definitely not a free agent, but yeah, uh, uh, an agent of a higher power. Then, then your boss is going to have opinion, but the, that's that's all in game. That's part of the contract of the character class, right? Right. There. right. <laughs> I, I think you know. I'll, oh, go ahead, Nick. Oh, I was going to say. Um, I think Adam was onto something that I think bears, uh, you know, uh, you know, repeating, or an hour. Maybe it was you, Brendan. I can't remember. I'm sorry, but you're right. We all do run games, and as a game master, I think we're always willing to give space to the game master uh, to create the setting that they have. I run a Doctor Who role-playing game, which means that we go back in time very often, and also to different cultures. Yep. And I think as a game master, I think you, if, if you're doing well for your players, you take the time, like Rob did, um, to set up and learn as much about the history as you can. But in my campaign, because we're going to a lot of different times and places, the best that I can sometimes do is a quick trip to Wikipedia, yeah, yeah. because this week we're going to ancient Japan, yeah. And then the next week we're going to be in <laughs> Neanderthal, you know, France or something. But, However, I think taking the opportunity to do at least a certain level of research is very important for game masters to at least try to get as much of the setting right. Even if it's some of the details or locations, um, what was engaging about, you know, the game that Robert was running for you was that it was pretty immersive. He really clearly understands medieval Europe, right? And the, the more detail that one has to the culture, how people act, I think the stronger that that is, right? Yeah. And so clearly, if you're going to, like, feudal Japan, that culture looks different than medieval Europe. So having making sure a game master takes a little bit of time to research that, I think, is valuable for everyone at the table. But also, if you get it wrong, you know, like, you guys were saying if you get it wrong, you know, in a sense, making no apologies for that is okay, you know, as long as everyone's kind of, you know, along for the ride. You know, we're, you know, like, like you said, not everybody's a PhD in history in, the, in this area of study. Uh, and even if they are, they might disagree on some aspects of it, right? Well, they might know so political think... history, but not like the, you know, they might not know much about like the physical culture or something. Like you see that on Facebook all the time. You see people that know an epic amount of, you know, like this is what tool they used for this. And, you know, somebody could, you know, get have six years of history and not even encounter that much of that. Um, you know, it depends mm -hmm. on what your area of focus is. And, uh, and so I think... Um, uh, but I, I want to talk about research, and I, I, want, I want to sort of put that on a hanger and get back to it. Cause I think that's really important. But I wanted to answer your question, too, because I, I did have something to add there, which was, for me, when it comes to correcting the Game Master, and my own campaigns when I've done historical stuff, it's really more about the level of respect that the player is giving and, and whether they're, why they're doing it. If they're doing it just to show off. I find that's the worst type of person to have. If it's if there's just a demonstration of knowledge for its own sake, that can be very disruptive. Um, but one thing that I I, I I did in my in my in my Wuxia campaign, and again, it's not strictly historical. It's I'm, I'm I'm not worried about anachronisms and stuff. But I want some of the cultural details to be right. Is I had a guy in the campaign who knew the language, lived in China, you know, knew things just that we didn't because we didn't live there. 
And so I gave him freedom to, to, I said, if it's really important, like if I'm really, really getting something wrong, feel free to weigh in. Don't be forceful about it, but you know, feel free to let us know so that I can adjust on the, in that situation. Um, but, uh, but otherwise, you know, like you were saying, give me a message after the game, if it's a detail that can wait. Um, but if it's something that's like, I'm catastrophically getting this wrong, I don't mind if you, you know, like I, I wanted to, I wanted to open up that channel because I felt like it would allow me to improve the game as I was playing. But I think the thing that made it work was we both sort of respected each other and it wasn't like a, it wasn't a contest. It was, we all, at the end of the day, we wanted the game to kind of function a certain way. And so, um, so leaning, you know, you know, leaning on the expertise of a player who knows a language you don't can be helpful in that situation. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, but, uh, on the, on the research topic, uh, the thing that, that you said that I thought was interesting there is that you're running a Doctor Who campaign. And so one of the things that is good about that is you're in the Doctor Who franchise. And so when you're in the Doctor Who franchise, I always sort of say, you, you got to sort of know what movie franchise you're in when you're, <laughs> when you're, when you're dealing with history, not in the sense of, oh, it's going to play out exactly like an episode of Doctor Who, but in the sense of what are the expectations in terms of how accurate this is going to be and you know doctor who gives you a little bit of license i feel to if you if you want to if you want to throw a harmonica in somewhere you probably you can probably explain it away at a you know at a period where it wouldn't belong and you know you can yeah and 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 people can be a little bit anachronistic because it's fun and it's amusing so uh you know uh you know whereas if you were in a in a in a if you were if your if your franchise was the Elizabeth movies, then you know you 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 might have to be you 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 might not be able to get away with as much. So, I think I think that is another consideration for stuff like this. Um, you know, like so in Rob's campaign, uh, later in the session we encountered some fairies, and that was totally on the table. Um, you know, so if you know whether supernatural elements are are uh, are okay is another thing. Um, Well, certainly the um, if you read the uh, what medieval people wrote, they certainly believe they lived them lived in a supernatural world. So, as far as I'm concerned, that is authentically medieval. Just play. It's just that we as 20th century or 21st century people know that the game mechanics make fairies real. So they are real, really real. While in our history, we view them as purely fiction and legend, maybe grounded in some weird incident that happened in in you know in the seventh century in this region, and now they think that forest is haunted by fairies, and that story kept really, kept being told over and over again, and it got embellished to the point where now you have these fantastic uh, beings living there, or it's a, it's a memory of the ancient of the the myth of the ancient world in classical period distorted through christianity and distorted through telling and telling it over and over again each embellishing it a little but yeah, uh, i was going to make a comment about that where you know they would see it as as fairies and lights you know that they see in a swamp we now know that there was swamp gas, which caused people to fall asleep, and they remember seeing the fireflies. So to them, they're falling asleep, but we know better now, maybe, you know? So if you're running a Doctor Who adventure, it's like, oh, the swamp lights are really these aliens doing something. You can throw that in there, and that, that yep. totally fits. But uh well, and I, I think, yeah. and I think the point Rob was making is that the authentic aspect of it is this is sort of fits in with what the people at the time believed. That was actually a big point Absolutely. of contention in the threads that we were referring to where, you know, the, the you know, mm. how, how much supernatural is permissible. Uh, and, uh, you know, my feeling on the supernatural stuff is number one, uh, when it's in keeping with the period, then I, I feel that's fairly authentic. That to me is, you know, I don't, I, I mm -hmm. but number two, supernatural makes a game so much easier to run sometimes like uh you know i can i can run a game that has no supernatural elements in it or no science you know for doing doctor who no sciencey stuff or no aliens but uh i don't know i i feel like you have way more tools in your toolbox when you put supernatural on the table so uh 
you know, I've, I've run games that don't have supernatural and you can do it, but, it, but it's more challenging, I think. And, uh, uh, you, you have to, you have to put a little bit more work into, uh, to, you know, how, how you're going to keep the players adventuring all the time. If you're not, if you're not able to have goblin show up every once in a while or, um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, th- I think, I think that the fairies added to the sense of, of the setting, uh, as a player in that game. I thought that it was, uh, especially the way it was done because it was done in a very sort of traditional sort of style of fairy. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it didn't feel like it was, it felt more plucked out of the middle ages than out of the monster manual in that case. So, um, so yeah. I, I, I mean, Ars Magica is the game, medieval game I've run more than anything else. So I'm completely comfortable with the idea that you're working from, yeah, everything people believed in the Middle Ages is true. It's just, it's an easy thing for me to go with. I, I had no problem with that. Yeah, the, the, the only D&Dism which you guys didn't really encounter was the uh, orcs. Because mm-hmm. if, I, if I were running this in Europe, it would have been a, uh, like a, like a war, a Mongol war band, or or some something of that, uh, a local cultural enemy instead of orcs. But it's what I had on, you know, it's what I had on hand for the scenario. So, mm-hmm. but but uh, you know the the like I said in the you were kind of out of it, Adam. But I was explaining that you know. <laughs> uh, you know, after we wrap things up, basically uh, what you guys stopped was that the whole premise of it was that, you know, the Russet Lord, in my setting, fairies are what they are because they, magic can be found in physical form, concentrated and used. I call it viz, okay? Like, mm-hmm. uh, the the morning's dew or or uh, a, uh, a a perfect flower. These can all be sources of, of magic and used in magical rituals and spells. Like an arts magic. Uh, yeah. Also, but yes, it's exactly <laughs> it's ripped off from arts magic <laughs> and repurposed for my own own setting. That's a good and, good use. Uh, the uh, but. I took it a step further in that not only it manifests itself in physical object, it can manifest itself in sentient being if there's a a sufficient you know concentration of mana and it is the scene of something of great emotion. Now it is possible for sentient being not to be involved if it's like a place of particularly like the Grand Canyon would have fairies. Uh, in, in my setting, because it's just a piece of I mean, such majestic beauty and wonder that 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 uh, anything that comes across it will feel enough emotion that it, it their beings would you know the fairies would be, but most of the time it's because of some place where at the right time at the right motion some a group of people or an individual experience some form of strong emotion. Now, if the emotion is basically positive, like love, charity, hope, then you get a summer fay being born. If they're negative, like fear, terror, despair, then you get a winter fay. For this, for the Russet Lord, the primary story uh, that gave him birth was a village that was being rent with this uh dissension because of two lovers of different social classes in this case in their particular case in this particular case it was a noble son falling in love with a peasant uh woman and the father going nuts over it and this let the the uh the village to be you know the village wasn't being properly defended anymore because they were fighting among themselves and an orc raid came out of the forest and just leveled it killed everybody and out of that was born the russet lord and the russet lord was now when a fairy first born they were relatively weak and they get stronger by mastering more stories but so the russet lord mastered and became a a fey lord however he always 
tries to reenact his primary story because that gives him the most power. And in this case, he saw an opportunity where a uh, the, the nobleman's daughter liked the son of the smith, and with the corrupt monks letting and the, and the tyrannical uh, bailiff letting things go at the manor, there was just a fertile ground. So he took advantage, sent a fae into the woods, found a willing group of orcs, uh, found an orc band that was willing to to listen to his uh, minion's honeyed word. And so the minion got the orcs ready for the right moment while the uh, russet lord sent under minions to encourage their love. And finally, you guys stumbled into the beginnings of that when they just ran off. And and I should say we do have a link, uh, which we'll put below to the uh, to the the actual live stream of the game, so people can check it out. Um, and uh, I think it's it, it's a, it's a I think it's a uh, it, it's a pretty fun live stream to watch. Actually, uh, Rob Rob like Rob was saying he likes acting, and you can definitely see that in uh, in his portrayal of the NPCs. And uh, and so it was. I, I I had a blast, and I've also just heard from people that watched it and enjoyed it. So, um, but uh, but yeah. So we're we're kind of getting close to the hour, so we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to end it soon. But do you guys have any final thoughts on the topic before we uh, before we depart? Um, I do, um, and I will say that. Um... First of all, it's okay for any game master or, or player to bring whatever level of authentic uh, culture that they want into their game. There's there's no requirement for anyone to be authentically medieval or not to be authentically medieval. I think the trick is to find uh, what you want for your game. And as somebody who did watch that live stream, I have to say um, how Robert ran it and how it was set up. Uh, in the situation that you guys played, it looked like that twist, the requirement, absolutely added to the setting as I observed it, as you guys played. And so I think it's a way to bring some a, a different feeling to a game. Um, and I think it, it's it's a great way to, to set up kind of a, a new setting and culture in a way that a lot of people don't initially think of bringing something to a game. Um, and so, but, but I don't feel that anybody needs to have that requirement. So, but I, I would love to play in that game that you guys had, you know, had a chance to, to be a part of. And it, it seemed like it really added something to the flavor of gameplay. Yeah. I'll, uh, piggyback off your comment and say that I, you know, I, I think people need to feel comfortable, even if they don't know a whole lot of history, to, to run a historical game. I'd rather have there be more people running historical games and getting details wrong than having everybody being afraid to do it. Because, well, I just don't know enough and I don't want to look stupid. And I, I think a lot of people that know about history scare people away from the genre. And it, it ends up hurting everybody in the gaming scene because of it. So. What? I, w I would agree with that. And one of the things that I would also say to people um, who maybe feel intimidated by it is, uh, you know, when I when I took my history courses, one of the things that always struck me about the teachers, especially the good ones, but pretty much most of them, is the amount of times you'd hear the words, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I think that's um, that's always a good starting point for knowing more. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's when, yeah. you know, so if you if you you don't, you know, being comfortable with what you don't know is is useful um and being able to say it uh is useful. it is well running running a game in rome where you don't know what you're doing as a gm is fine because the longer you do it you're going to keep picking up details about rome over time and then like after you've been running that campaign for a year you're an expert on running a game in rome you know and you only got there because you were willing to do it when you didn't know much <laughs> well i would say that that focus first on getting the people right the details whether you got the right kind of toga describe the right kind of toga or whether the person's office is an adelaide or a praetor or <laughs> or or in the case of my game like a uh, uh a bailiff versus a reeve versus a hayward i mean yeah focus on just just imagine you're in a medieval village you go up and you talk to the guy, you know, plowing the field, 
Just imagine in your head what that's like. Then go and talk to the Lord of the Manor. And then go in your mind, talk to the leader of the village. And try to build that picture up in your mind. And then when you play, translate that picture into how you role play. And then it doesn't, and I guarantee you, if that comes off good, they won't don't really care about the details that yeah. much. They may <laughs> point out one or two things, but that's it. Get the people right. You'll be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's the important, ultimately, you know, I, I think what, is, like what Adam was saying before too, you know, you, you really want people to sort of enjoy history and have fun with it. And it doesn't, you know, if people, if people are nervous, it's, it's, uh, uh, they're, they're, it's sort of, it's like you said, that ignorance that they're worried about is only going to last so long anyways, if they're, if they're engaging it regularly. So, uh, you know, the important thing is to kind of focus on, on the stuff that you can do and everybody should be able to do characters and be able to at least, you know, put whatever knowledge they have of the period into the characters and then just roll with that. And as they play longer, the detail, they might learn more details that they can add, but it's not, you know, a lot of the stuff is detail. It's not, it's not stuff that like, nobody's going to die if you, if you, uh, if you get a detail wrong about how the imperial bureaucracy works or something. Do you know what I mean? You can, and you can remedy that down the road. So, um, right. And you know, for example, and I'll do a quick example here. Say you're playing a, uh, you know, you said, oh, I want to be a knight's son like you did, or a baron's son like you did, Brendan. You know, and if the DM, is, you know, if you took the time to learn, you know, most, by and large, the average for peasantry is to treat nobility with respect because they're like on a higher plane. But if you do it through the role plane of the character, the player will quickly pick up on the fact that you know, oh, wow, this is kind of expected. And then when it doesn't happen, <laughs> you know that something's off or there's an ulterior reason. And, hey, maybe, you know, maybe that's where my venture is. Why is this no peasant, you know, not treating with respect? You know, what's going on here? Aside from being insulted in the first place, but that's not the normal. You know, and the same with, you know, role-playing with churchmen and, and merchants and, you know, and all that. So, you know, it's like, you know, you know, it's what they say, show, you know, don't tell, show, you know, that's how you do. That's what the, you do in role-playing game. You show by role-playing, not, not tell them. That's a, that's a really useful one in particular, because you're talking about showing the players where they, how people see them in the society. And that's something that even in a modern setting, you can lose sight of like, Hey, if I'm a, if I'm like dressed like a biker, people might react a certain way when I walk into, you know, when I walk into the cafe. So I think that's, um, uh, you know, it's, that's a really useful tool in the GM box in general and in particular in the the history. So, um, so, right, so we're, we're past the hour point, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it here, and we will, uh, we will return next week uh, with the, uh, the next Brave Archer discussion uh, in, our, in our Friday night uh, topics. And we will, uh, we will, we will uh, probably be back next month with another one of these uh, uh, game labs. So, all right, we'll uh, be back on, and we will talk to you later. <laughs>